scripture reading this evening will be from Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 16 through 17. It'll be page 634 in your pew Bibles. It's Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 16 through 17. Page 634. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for ancient paths where, good way, where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they say we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they say we will not pay attention. We sing a song entitled Ancient Words. It's a beautiful song. It's about the Bible. It's about the words that are in Scripture. And when we sing that song, I often think of that passage it was just read in Jeremiah 6, verses 16 and 17, where God told the people to seek the old paths, to seek the ancient words. And the people said, we won't seek those words. We won't listen to what you've got to say. There are some ancient words that God has given to us. They are thousands of years since they've been given, and yet they are ever true, and they're relevant, and they're life-changing even today. Open to two passages briefly with me as we introduce this study. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. As Paul is writing to a young man named Titus, he tells Titus, the eternal life has been given, has been made available to all men. And in Titus 1 verse 2, he says that God who cannot lie has promised eternal life and he did so before time began. You see that in Titus 1 verse 2? God cannot lie. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 6 and look at verse 18. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18. When we think about the ancient words that we hold in our hands when we hold a Bible, we're thinking about words that are ever true. And it's because of where they originate. It's because of who gave them. He's a God who cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. And in Hebrews 6 verse 18, the scripture says, By two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation to whom we have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. It's impossible for God to lie, according to Hebrews 6, verse 18. If God cannot lie, Titus 1, verse 2, if it's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6, verse 18, what that tells us is that his word is filled with truth. These ancient words really are ever true. And there's a fancy term that we use to describe the ever-trueness of the ancient words that God's given us of the Bible. The word is called immutability. Or, if you want to think about it this way, the immutability has to do with unchanging, inerrancy. Immutability, inerrancy. God's word does not change. It's immutable. God's word is inerrant. That is, it contains nothing false. And it's really important for Christians, especially now, especially today, in a world where everybody kind of picks and chooses what truth they want to accept. And people want to say, if you've got a truth that you believe, I've got a truth that I believe, and let's not really 
mince words or let's not really think a whole lot about the contradictions that might be implied by that. We need to think about the inerrancy of God's word and what it means. Ancient words. And so this evening, I'd like for us to just consider four ideas regarding the inerrancy of God's word. First of all, let's do this. Let's just define it. As you think about the idea of inerrancy, when we say the Bible is inerrant, what are we saying about the scriptures? When you look at your Bible, you've got 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And what we're saying about inerrancy is this. In those 66 books, number one, the Bible always tells the truth. Why does it always tell the truth? Because it comes from a God who cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. That's why we believe the Bible always tells the truth. And then secondly, like unto this, is the idea that the Bible always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. And this becomes really relevant really fast when you think about, for example, evolution and the idea that men evolved from lower forms of life. The Bible presents a very different account of where we came from than that idea. And so if we're thinking about the doctrine of inerrancy, what we're saying is because the Bible comes from God and God cannot lie, the Bible tells the truth and the Bible always tells the truth about everything it talks about. So if the Bible brings up science, it's telling the truth as a scientific reality. If the Bible brings up history, it's telling us the truth regarding the history of the world and of cultures and of languages and people. The Bible tells the truth concerning everything it talks about couple of passages to think about along these lines. In Psalm chapter 12 and verse 6, the psalmist writes this, every word of the Lord is pure. That's what he says in Psalm 12, 6, every word of the Lord is pure. And then he goes on to describe just how pure, how pure are these words? He says, it's like silver refined in a furnace of the earth seven times. If you take silver and you pass it through a furnace and do so seven times, that means that you've purged all the dross out of the silver. There's nothing corrupt. There's nothing mistaken. There's nothing impure in the Word of God. That's what he's saying in Psalm 12, verse 6. Another passage that's very similar. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30 and look at verse 5. I'll have you open to some passages with me this evening as we kind of think about this idea of inerrancy, the idea that the Bible always tells the truth and it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. If it's telling you what you need to do to be saved, you can believe that it's telling you the right things. If it talks about what life after death is going to be like, you can take it to the bank. The Bible is telling the truth. If it tells you about something that happened thousands of years ago, it's telling you the truth. And here's what the Proverbs writer says about this in Proverbs 30 verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So the Proverbs writer is saying something very similar to the psalmist who said, the words of God are pure. Every word is pure. You can put your trust in what God has spoken, what God has given us. Later on in the New Testament in John 17, verse 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer for his disciples asked God to sanctify his disciples 
he said, sanctify them by truth. And then he went on to explain, your word is truth. Jesus believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. He believed that the Bible tells the truth and the Bible always tells the truth about everything it talks about. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25, Peter talked about how we've been converted, we've become Christians, and he says, you became Christians when you obeyed the gospel, and it is the word of God which lives and abides forever. So how do we become Christians? We listen to a message, we listen to words, ancient words that came from God, and we know they're true because of the one who gave them. And this word, these, these words that have been given to us, they live and abide forever. The Bible always tells the truth, and nobody's ever going to find some scientific discovery in the future. Nobody's ever going to come up with some idea in the future that's going to undermine and thwart the words that God's given us. They are ever true. They were true yesterday. They're true today. They're true forever. That's what we mean when we talk about biblical inerrancy. And you might be surprised when you talk to your friends at work, when you talk to people at school, you might be surprised if you just kind of bring up this idea of the Bible always being true, you might be surprised just how many people doubt the idea that the Bible is full of truth. You might be surprised how many people even in our own brotherhood would say something like this. Well, Paul said a, a number of things that were kind of his opinion, and, and he put some things in his writings that were reflective of his culture, but they're not really from God. They're not really true. The doctrine of inerrancy teaches that the Bible is true from start to finish, and it's true regarding everything that it talks about. That's an important biblical doctrine. Secondly, as we think about the idea of inerrancy. Let's talk about some features of inerrancy because this is where some people kind of get a little bit confused or maybe they bring up an objection here or there. So when we say the Bible is inerrant, when the Bible says that it's inerrant, that God cannot lie, there are some features of the Bible that you still need to be aware of. For example, number one, though it is inerrant, the Bible still uses what we'll call ordinary language. Got your Bible with you? Look at Matthew 5, verse 45. Matthew 5, verse 45, Sermon on the Mount. The Bible's full of scientific inaccuracies, I've heard. I've been in some conversations with people about that idea over the years. And this was brought up more than once. Matthew 5, verse 45, listen to the words of Jesus. He says, We ought to bless our enemies and do good to them so that we may be sons of our Father in heaven. For, Matthew 5.45, he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Have you ever had somebody say, everybody knows the sun doesn't rise? The earth rotates. And so it just looks to us like the sun's rising, doesn't it? The sun doesn't actually rise. See, the Bible's full of scientific inaccuracies. But I don't know about you, 
But when I listen to the radio or I watch the weatherman in the morning, oftentimes there'll be a picture of the sun on the TV camera and he'll say, what a beautiful sunrise. I can't just call up the TV station and say, the weatherman's full of scientific inaccuracies. He said the sun rose, but everybody knows the earth is spinning and that's why it looks like the sun rose. All we're saying is that the Bible uses this kind of language. We use the idea of sunrise to describe a phenomenon that happens every single day. And the Bible just accommodates that. It uses ordinary language, language that we understand in those kind of respects. Secondly, the Bible is true, it's inerrant, and yet, though it's inerrant, the Bible still contains various types of literature. If you've ever tried to read the Bible from start to finish, wow, you're going through a very diverse array of literature types. Genesis is history. It presents itself as history. Exodus has a lot of history, but then it gets into some law and and it gives you the, the different components of the tabernacle and how it's all to be constructed and the ornaments of the artifacts in the tabernacle. And then you get to Leviticus and now you're really heavily into law. Very different from what you were reading in Genesis and yet those are the books of, that we call books of law. Then you get over into the book of Psalms, for example, and you've got poetry, a lot of hyperbole, a lot of rhyming ideas in the book of Psalms. You get over to Matthew, and now you've got a historical narrative of the life of Jesus. It's giving you selectively some of the facts about Jesus' life that you need to know so that you can come to know him. The Bible contains various types of literature, and various types of literature function in various ways as we read them and understand them. And so the Bible's true, And it's true about everything it talks about, but we have to appreciate the variety of literary types in the Bible. Third, though the Bible is inerrant, it still gives approximations. And most of the time, it tells you when it's giving you an approximation. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and look at verse 41. How many people were baptized on the day of Pentecost? Acts 2 verse 41 The Bible says that those who gladly received his word were baptized. And then it says in Acts 2.41, that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Well, how many was it, Luke? Was it 3,205? Was it 2,996? How many was it? And Luke just says about. It's an approximation. Is the Bible telling me the truth? Yes, but it's giving me an approximation in this case. And it does that in other places as well. And it'll tell you. Number four, though it's inerrant, the Bible still uses symbols. When I was a kid in high school, I always wanted to study the book of Revelation. By the way, kind of an amusing thing. I asked recently for you to give me feedback about what books you'd like to learn. And I said, with the exception of Revelation, you'd be surprised how many people said, but I really want to learn more about Revelation. Even though I I understand that. We'll, We'll do that. We'll talk more about Revelation. But one of the reasons I wanted when I was a high school kid to learn about Revelation is because of the dragon, the beast, those things you read about in Revelation 12 and 13. And I want to know more about that. I need to understand, you need to understand, there are symbols being used in the book of Revelation because of the type of literature that's there. And so, as Christians, we appreciate the Bible sometimes uses symbolic language in order to get its point across. It's telling the truth about everything it talks about, but it does so with symbols at times. And then number five, sometimes the Bible, even though it's inerrant, uses figures of speech. 
Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus says, talking to a bunch of human beings, okay? You are the salt of the earth. No, I'm not. I'm a human being. You are the light of the world. No, I'm not. I'm a human being. What's Jesus doing? He's using simile and metaphor to try to help us understand how we need to see ourselves as disciples. We're like salt to the world. We're like light to a lost and dying world that's in darkness. And so the Bible tells the truth, and yet it still uses figures of speech at times in order to get its point across. It talks about in the book of Psalms, God being a rock and a fortress and a mighty tower. It's using figures of speech, and we appreciate that because we understand the kind of literature that we're dealing with. And so when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, a lot of things that people might bring up as objections can be answered very quickly and very easily if we'll just appreciate that the Bible uses language, oftentimes in the very same ways we use language, to communicate truth to people who need to hear it. Next, as we think about the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, the fact that it always tells the truth and it always tells the truth about everything it talks about, what are some evidences for the inerrancy of Scripture? A couple of passages to look at. Open your Bibles, if you would, first of all, to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, and look at verses 25 and verse 44. The first response I would give somebody who says, I want to know how you know that the Scripture always tells the truth. I would ask, first and foremost, have you read Jesus' opinion of the Scriptures? Have you read the way he talks about the Bible? Because after his resurrection, for example, and this is one of many examples we could give, in Luke 24, verse 25, Jesus rebukes some people, and he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? What's Jesus upset about? He's upset that these people have not believed everything that the prophets have spoken. Those ancient words, Jesus would say, they're completely true from start to finish. You should have listened to everything the prophets were saying about me. Later on, Luke 24, uh, Luke 24 verse 44, the same chapter. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, he says, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Jesus had a high view, a high opinion of the accuracy and the truthfulness of Scripture. If Jesus thinks that way about Scripture, then I better think that way about Scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, he said, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Matthew 4, verse 4. Jesus believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. Not only that, the apostles treated Scripture this way. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter says, No prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. He says that holy men of God were moved as they were carried along, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what does Peter believe about Scripture? What do the rest of the apostles believe? They believe that the Scripture is ancient words that were given to us by one who cannot lie, by God himself. The way the apostles treated Scripture is an evidence of its inerrancy. How about the test of a true prophet? You remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 and 22? Moses said that God was going to send a prophet that was like him, but better than him. 
And then he went on to give a way to know whether the person you're listening to is a true prophet or false prophet. You remember? In Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 and 22, God said, if somebody tells you something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, don't listen to anything he says. He's a false prophet. But, but Moses, what if we were just, what if he was just wrong in one little detail? No, if he tells you something's going to happen and it comes, it doesn't come to pass, don't listen to him anymore. He's not a prophet. And so if the people who wrote the words of scripture as they were given to them by God, if those people wrote some things that were inaccurate, the Bible itself tells us that we shouldn't listen to them. It's the test of how you know someone's a true prophet or a false prophet. Are their words completely and utterly true? Next, as we've noted in our introduction, God's character is tied to his words. Who God is, he is the God who cannot lie. And he has given us his word in writing. And it stands to reason If God cannot lie, then his word is absolute truth. It's inerrant. His word is incapable of lying. Evidences of inerrancy. How about arguments? Throughout the Bible, you'll find people like Jesus, for example, when they ask him about the resurrection of the dead, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 32, Jesus went back to the Old Testament and he made an argument based on the verb tense When God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by using that argument, what Jesus is saying is, not only are the words of Scripture true, but we ought to pay attention to things like the tense of the verb. And we ought to pay attention to whether or not it's first person, second person, third person, singular or plural. And we ought to pay attention to nouns and what they describe. Because Jesus is making an argument based on one single word, one single verb tense. And he's proving that the resurrection of the dead, the fact that people continue to live after death, all of that's bound up in the fact that God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Galatians 3.16, something similar. Paul reasons with the Jews about how God said, I'm going to bless the world through the seed, singular, of Abraham. Not seeds as many, but seed as one. Singular, not plural. These are evidences that everything the Bible says is true. The way God put the words together, the way he phrased things, are exactly the way God intended in his infinite wisdom evidences of the inerrancy of scripture one more turn your bibles to second timothy 3 and look at verse 16 second timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 scripture itself declares that it is ever true it declares that it always tells the truth and it always tells the truth about everything it talks about second timothy 3 16 all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture, always profitable for every good work. 
In other words, Scripture is valuable. Those ancient words are ever true. They always have been and they always will be. And people might fight against it or they might object to it or they might say, I don't like what it says here, I don't like what it says there. But the words are true, whether we believe them or not, whether we acknowledge them or not, whether we obey them or not. They are truth. Number four, as you think about the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, how serious is this? I mean, we're thinking about the Bible And we're thinking about this idea that the Bible always tells the truth and it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. So let's turn it around for a minute and ask the question, well, what if the Bible contains inaccuracies? What if there are some things that are not quite right in Scripture? What are the implications of that? There are some pretty serious implications, to be honest with you. Think about this. If the Bible contains inaccuracies, number one, Ephesians 5 verse 1 tells us that we are to imitate God. It commands you to imitate God. If the Bible contains inaccuracies, well, then we might well imitate God by lying in some small matters. Think about that. God cannot lie, it says. It's impossible for him to lie. I'm supposed to imitate him. I'm supposed to speak the truth with my neighbor. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 And so are you. But if the Bible contains some inaccuracies, why can't I do that? Secondly, we might wonder whether we can really trust God. If the Bible contains inaccuracies, if God has given us these ancient words and there are some things that are not true and there are some sections of Scripture that are not right and we just know that that doesn't accord with reality. That, that's not the way the world really is. That's not the way the spiritual world really is. If we know they're false, even if it's a small thing, God has been saying for thousands of years to people, you can trust me. I'll be there for you. I'll bless you. I love you. I want a relationship with you. I want you to know me. God's been saying those things. How can you ever trust a God who's given you some things that are not true? It's a serious thing. Next, if the Bible contains inaccuracies here or there, one place or another, think very long and hard about this one. We become the judge of what is true and what is not. If I take the assumption that some of this is not true, all of a sudden I become the judge and the jury and the executioner. I get to decide which paragraphs are true and which ones are not, and so do you. I always used to be frustrated when I'd watch the Discovery Channel and maybe they'd be talking about the flood or maybe they'd be talking about the, um, uh, you know, the crossing of the Red Sea. And they'd always get these scholars and they'd put them on and these people have PhDs from all kinds of places that you've heard of. And and these people sit there with their very authoritative tone and their, their alphabet soup after their name. And they tell you, well, we know that the Israelites really didn't cross the Red Sea. We, we just know that didn't happen. And I'm thinking, how do you know that didn't happen? Well, it just couldn't have. And, and they start with that assumption. They just make up a bunch of ideas about how this might have happened and how it became legend and lore and things like that. 
If you take that approach to Scripture, that there are parts of it that didn't happen, parts of it that aren't true, parts of it that is just telling you a flat-out lie, if that's the assumption and the approach that you take, you have become the judge of Scripture. You have decided what is true and what is not. Think about this from an evolutionary, I brought this up a minute ago, standpoint. Genesis 1 through 11, along with the other chapters of Genesis, it's got 50 chapters, the whole book presents itself as history. It doesn't present itself as mythology. I've heard some of my brethren try to argue over the years that the first 11 or so chapters are just a myth, just a fable about how the world began. And they'll say that, that these ideas, you know, that's just kind of the story that the Jews told to their children and that got recorded in Scripture, but that's not really where the world came from and that's not really how it happened. Okay, tell me if that's true, if what you say is true, that that's just a myth, tell me where the myth stops and the history starts. Point to the book, chapter, and verse where the mythology of Genesis comes to an end. It's been telling us about how the world was created and how man was created and how God made Eve out of the rib of Adam. And it tells you all this stuff and the serpent was in the garden. And Okay, if that's all myth, tell me where the history starts. You're going to have to come to that conclusion somewhere because somehow, some way, Genesis starts with history at some point. Tell me where. And then tell me this. How did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to the conclusion that that was the place that accurate, reliable world history began? If the Bible contains inaccuracies, you and I become the judge of what's true and what's not. And there is no reliable way to assess what's true and what's false. We just can't. Jeremiah 10.23 says, I know the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man who walks to direct his own steps. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Proverbs 14.12 Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I don't tell the lamp what it's supposed to be shining on. The lamp shines and reflects back to me what's real. That's the way the Word works. Next, the seriousness of the doctrine of inerrancy. If the Bible contains inaccuracies, it's not just wrong about some little things. It is wrong about some major doctrines as well. Jesus was wrong when Jesus said, your word is truth. Jesus didn't qualify his statement. He didn't say most of your word is truth, parts of your word is truth. He said, your word is truth. Sanctify them by truth. Not only that, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How do we know Jesus is reliable? How do we know that he's telling us the truth? If there's inaccuracies throughout Scripture, there's some major doctrines that are held in suspicion if the Bible is inaccurate in any place. We need to understand this is a really critical Bible doctrine. The idea that the Bible tells the truth and it always tells the truth about everything it talks about. It is critically important for Christians to appreciate the fact that the ancient words of Scripture, these ancient words... They change us. They transform us because they're true. This is supposed to be kind of a faith-building sermon to help us to appreciate 
as we think about God's Word and as we read and sync together as a congregation, what we're reading is reality. It's true. It's not fake news. It's not spun in order to be politically correct. It is just the unvarnished, plain truth. And wise are the people who hear and obey. James chapter 1, verse 22. Do you need to obey the Word of God this evening? You know what you need to do. You want to repent and be baptized so that you can be a New Testament Christian. Maybe you need to respond or you'd like to ask for prayers. Heaven's invitation is yours while we sing this song of invitation together once you make your way down the aisle.